Hope you're doing well. If you're wondering, yes, this is the final product of that video. Jordan and I got paid one week to throw paint at something. So that was, that was pretty fun. Um, Eric, too, actually. Um, so uh, Eric's the guy that stands here and plays the guitar and actually made the whole video. So thank you for all that. It was fun. It was fun. Anyway, um, we thought we'd put on display our final product, and then we're going to put it in our office one day as our, uh, I guess, homage to Jackson Pollock, although he wasn't a Christian or anything. So anyway, if you know who that is, you can Google that later. Don't do it, do it now. Um, anyway, um, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we have been preaching, if you've been here for any time, through the book of Acts. And last week, as we said, um, when we saw Paul plant the church in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, we said we're going to take a, a pause. We've been in the book of Acts for 45 sermons, and we're going to... Uh, since we saw him last week plant the, per- plant the church in the city of Corinth, what we're doing now is for the next 16 weeks, we're going to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so what we're doing is we're getting a, about a two-year or to three-year version later. So Paul planted the church in the city of Corinth. They you know, populated themselves. They grew, etc. Paul left. If you read the book of, of Acts, after Acts 18, 1 through 17, he goes to the city of Ephesus and plants the church there. He's in Ephesus for about three years, and while he's in Ephesus, he writes this letter to the, to the church in Corinth. So uh, what we're reading is a product of he planted the church, and about two to three years later, he's writing a letter back to them addressing the serious mess that they have already become in just two to three years. And when it comes to mess, they are a mess, and so hence messy church. Uh, and so what we're seeing, though, is as Paul writes to them, the, the grace that the pastoral grace that Paul uses to write when they have all kinds of issues. I mean, just tons and tons of issues. So what we're going to do is this. Um, we, I want to read the entire text. And so you don't need to stand for this one this week because it's so long. Uh, but I like, thank goodness. I'll stand for you because I love you. Anyway, um, I, I'll, I'll stand and I'll read it. But we still want to do the same thing. After I read it, uh, we'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And as, just as a reminder, the, way you, the reason why you're doing that is because as we're reading, we're saying, thanks be to God. And we're reminding ourselves that this is God's word. This isn't just some book. This isn't your favorite author writing their story. And we're reading that. Instead, because we don't have to put ourselves under the authority of your favorite author. You know, J.D. Rawlings or whatever her name is or whatever it is. Or whatever author you like. I, I don't read, obviously, that, those fiction books. Um, I just read for wisdom. So anyway, um, uh, whoever it is, when you read those things, you don't have to submit yourselves into the authority of that narrative. This, however, as you read it, you have to submit yourselves into the authority of the scriptures. And so we say that just to remind ourselves that when we hear the truths of the word, we have to put ourselves under its authority and listen to it and submit to it. So let me read it. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to go through 2-5, through 2-5, um, starting at verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So 
that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to, to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Je Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but <clears throat> that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will throw it. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast, I'm sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And <clears throat> I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the test, did, did not come, let me start again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We pray that as we look at it this morning, that we would submit our hearts and lives to it. That God, you would help me be faithful to the text and preach it um, according to how it was written uh, to its original hearers. I pray that all of us, Lord, as we look, would see Christ, um, that we would understand the good news of the gospel for us today, and for anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, that they would put their faith in Christ today, that if they realize they're lost, they realize they're a sinner, they realize they're not saved, they realize that they have no hope right now, they realize that outside of Jesus, they know that they'll go to hell, that they would put their faith in Christ and be saved. There's only two people, as this text described, perishing or being saved, and that they would trust in Christ and be saved today. I pray for us all as we look at this letter that we would be encouraged 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you feel like your life is a mess, then this is the perfect letter. If you feel like you can never get your act together, this is it. This letter is written to a messy, messy church, a sinful, debaucherous church. Now, we need to be sure uh, because Paul does not take the tone of the Galatians, right? If you are familiar with the book of the Galatians, the Galatians had the gospel wrong. These people are just wretched, like they're Christians, but they, they, they just sin a lot, right? So Paul pastorally doesn't, because they're such sinners, say, like in a, in a real terse, mean manner like he does with the Galatians, get your act together, what's wrong with you, I can't believe... That's not what he does, right? It, even though they're clearly messed up, we've got people, Christians that are suing against each other. We've got people that are, there's incest. We've got sexual morality. We've got people that aren't looking out for their weaker brothers. They could care less about their weaker brother. We've got people that are arguing over gifts, vying for leadership. We've got factions where I follow this guy, I follow this guy. They've got a bunch of problems in here. And Paul doesn't take this strong, mean authoritative tone towards them. What's wrong with you? Get your stuff together. He doesn't take the Galatian tone. Instead, he takes more of a Philippian tone. And even though they're a mess, he comes immediately with them pastorally, loving, and encouraging. Notice what he does. And this is, this is Corinth. I mean, this is a, this is a messed up city. When, 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 this Paul, this church, when this church was planted by Paul, it had a history of 400 years of prostitution. They, they had erected a temple to the goddess um, of sex or goddess of love, Aphrodite, where she had a thousand female slaves that worked in this temple that would go out by day and do her bidding and at night come into the temple and be prostitutes some 400 years. And vestiges of that sexual morality were present in the city where so much so that if they took the verb form of the, the word Corinthians, if they turned it into the ver- verb form to play the Corinthian, it was a euphemism for fornication. If you took the, the noun form of Corinthians, the noun form which meant the city, but if you took the feminine form of that, it meant to be a prostitute. So this is New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, all mixed up into one big, wealthy, debaucherous city. And they had all kinds of problems. Paul had just planted the church two to three years ago, and they have a huge, 16 chapters, and there's a, cha- there's a part two, huge list of problems that they were dealing with, Right? And how does Paul start out with? Not, I can't believe after two years you're already a mess. No. Instead, notice in verse 4 through 6 here, Paul's gospel-filled thanksgiving. Here's the first part. Number one, if you're writing down notes. Paul's gospel-filled thanksgiving. Bloomberg, as we're looking at this thanksgiving, Bloomberg says, Surely the most striking feature of the beginning of this letter, the thanksgiving, is how positive Paul can be about a church that's torn with strife and abuses and sin and and the abuses of the very gift that he's thanking God that God had given them. Notice how this, this immediate tone that Paul takes. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. So now that you know how just how messed up they are in two years, let the tone of Paul be like, what, a, what an amazing use of Jesus through Paul to be pastorally and loving to them. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way, this is sexually immoral people that are hooking up with prostitutes. He's still saying to this, this church. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking any spiritual gift. They're going to argue about gifts in in chapters 12 through 14. And he's already confirming their spiritual gifts now. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who will sustain you to the end. 
And how will he sustain you at the end? He will declare you as guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul immediately takes this amazing pastoral tone with them and tells them this gospel-filled thanksgiving where he gives them a list, I think, of eight different truths because of the death of Christ that they have richly obtained now in, in God. And so what I want to do is, for the first five or ten minutes, um, if this was a sermon and I was actually just doing section by section, I would do a whole sermon on just this. But, alas, we are not doing it that way. We are doing chapter by chapter, which is good. It's good for you to have a, a larger viewpoint of the arguments that are being laid out. But before, for the first five or ten minutes, I want you to hear the gospel here. Eight different truths that aren't just true for this, you know, messy Corinthian church. But for us, the messy remedy church, we've got our own stuff that we're dealing with. And it's good for us to hear these things. So here are these eight truths. Be gospeled here in these first ten minutes, knowing what Christ has done for you. Number one, the grace of God has been given to you in Christ. As sinful as you and I are continually, waves and waves of God's grace, bigger waves of our sin, of God's grace, are being lavished on you. You can't out the grace of God. No matter how big you think your sin is, the grace of God is bigger and continually over, overtakes you and washes over you. The grace of God has been revealed to you specifically in Christ. Jesus Christ has obtained this for you. Second, you have been enriched in every way by Christ. These people love sex, money, and power. And he's telling them, he's pointing them in a different way and say, you're rich, but not because of the way that you think, but instead in Christ. Jesus Christ has enriched you in every single way. Not only that, your speech and your knowledge have been enriched. They, they certainly were hungry after these things in a worldly sense. And he says, no, you don't need that in the world because in Christ you have these things. Speech and knowledge. You, Remedy Church, have been enriched in every way by Christ. Grace of God has been shown to you and your speech and knowledge have been enriched. Not only that, he says, in Christ you have been spiritual gifts. You have been given spiritual gifts. This means everybody that's a believer has been given spiritual gifts by God. You may not feel like you have very many spiritual gifts. You may feel like you're a spiritual giant. Either way, all these things have been given to you by God for his glory, not yours. So whether you feel like you're super gifted or you have nothing, the truth is you have been given spiritual gifts by God to you. To be used for the growing and equipping of the church and ultimately for the glory of God. And just as a side note, when he tells them, which they're arguing about in chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts, he tells them that they've been given spiritual gifts. Having a spiritual gifts is an indicator that the Holy Spirit is actually present in your life. They need to hear that, and we need to hear that, because that gives us a certain security that we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit's in us. The Holy Spirit's in you if you're in Christ, which is a great blessing to know that we're in Christ. Next, and this is great, he promises them that Jesus is going to come again. The first coming of Jesus was meek and mild. The second coming of Jesus is a conquering king. And he's saying, Jesus is going to come again. And not only that, when he does, he's going to look at you and I, which we sin, right? And he's going to declare you fully sanctified. That's how he says it when he says, um, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among that you are not lacking any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you till the end? This is, this, which is our next one. Jesus Christ will sustain you until the end. There's no uh, getting up on your on yourself uh, and trying to work your way towards uh, being good. Instead, your only hope of sanctification, your only hope of, of being more like Christ is the gospel, which means it's been given to you already, and you will, because of Jesus' work, be fully sanctified. And 
He will sustain you. As much as you and I fret constantly, which is not necessarily a bad thing, unless it's too much, about being more like Christ and trying to get rid of the sin that we have, Jesus sustains us. He's our only hope. In the end, our only hope is him, not ourselves. The next thing he says is that this is, this is mind-blowing. To the Corinthian church. So if he's saying that to them, consider that he would say this to you. They says it there in verse number 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The truth about you and I, in the end, when Christ looks at us, as wretched sinful as we are, he's going to look at you and say, guiltless. Let that hit you. Let that sink in for a second. Christ has said, you are going to be guiltless at, at the day of Christ. That's pretty amazing. So he reminds them of these things, which gives us great eternal security. Those who uh, the Spirit has genuinely indwelt will experience a real transformation throughout this life. And then one day we can be assured that he's going to bring it to the to completion when he comes back and he looks at us and he's going to say, guiltless. And lastly, he tells us this, that our faithful God has called us now into intimate fellowship with him. Not just one day, but now. We have full access to one day and now, in part, to full intimate fellowship with Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross, you have that right now. Fellowship with him. And so as Paul tells the Corinthian church these things that Jesus has obtained them what he's wanting to do is to highlight the faithfulness of God and juxtapose it to the fickleness of humans and say that matters not the only thing that matters in Corinthian church you need to hear this is God is faithful look what he has done for you already yes there is a 16 chapter list of things that need to be addressed however let's start with this God is faithful and Christ Jesus has obtained all eight of these truths already for you. So the things that I'm going to list out are not things that should overcome you. Should not make you feel, well, I'm trash, forget me, forget, I can't ever get my act together. Because Christ Jesus has declared you guiltless at the end of, at the end of um, when he comes back. So, Paul starts out with the gospel before he goes into the things that he needs to address. Now, if you were to take the book of 1 Corinthians and outline it into its broadest outline, the biggest, broadest outline, it's really two big sections. Chapter 1, verse 1, starting at verse 10, uh, where you can see, I appeal to you, brothers, that all the way through chapter 6, verse 20, is the first section. 110 through 620 is section 1, and then at 7-1, all the way through 16-4 is the second section. So, really, the first six chapters, the last... Uh, 7 through 16. That's really the biggest, broadest outline of, of, of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And the way it's bro broken up is 1 Corinthians 1 through 6 is Paul has heard some stuff. You can see it in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe's people done got them in trouble, right? Chloe's people came, brought some, hey Paul, remember that church you planted a couple years in Corinth? I got a list. I got a list of stuff, right? And so <laughs> in chapters 1 through 6, he takes care of Chloe's list. That's the first. The second section, where it starts in chapter 7, he says, Paul says, now about your letter. The Corinthian church had written a letter to them, and they had all kinds of questions. So the second half is, first half is, um, 
Corinthians church, I got to deal with a bunch of junk about Chloe's list. The second list is, you have a bunch of questions, let me answer those about marriage, about food con- sacrifice to idols, about gifts, things like that. So that's the biggest, broadest kind of outline if you're looking at 1 Corinthians is <laughs> Chloe's list from 1 through 6, and then Paul answering their questions from their letter in 7 through 14. Now, regarding Chloe's list, chapters 1 through 6, it's kind of broken down into four things. Chloe had four little deals that she needed to let Paul know about. Number one, there were divisions and factions in the Corinthian church. And Paul is going to address the divisions and factions in chapters 1 through 4. The next, uh, the second issue is the incest that's taken place in the Corinthian church. A guy was hooking up with his father's wife, not his mom, his stepmom. And that's in chapter 5. Paul is very, very strong with his language in that. And Paul is going to address that. In chapter 6, there's two things. One, there's lawsuits among Christians. And the second half, he's addressing the sexual morality, which had a 400-year history of prostitution. And so those are the four things that Paul's going to address in chapters 1 through 6. So what we're going to do is dive down into the factions, the divisiveness that's happening. It's really chapters 1 through 4. We're just going to look at chapter 1 into 2-5 and see... uh, What's going on in this factions or the divisiveness that's going on in the Corinthian church? Now, first, we're going to see the problem. Paul states the problem for us in the Corinthian church and starting in verse 10 through verse 17. Here's the problem that's been reported to me about factions. And then he's going to give them the answer starting at 1.18. And it really goes through chapter 4. We're just going to go through 2.5 today because uh, he gives his first answer to the problem. So here's the problem. Starting at chapter 10, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. They're not agreeing. They're having disagreements. Now, we need to be careful. Um, the, the, the factions that are happening are not first-tier issues. It's not the gospel. It's second-tier issues. For them, it's uh, who is the person that they should follow. You should see, for it has actually been reported to me by Chloe's people. So thanks a lot, Chloe. You got us in trouble. That's what the Corinthians were thinking. That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas and the spiritual who Jesus juked them all. I follow Christ. So yeah, about y'all. So that's kind of the, uh, the four different divisions that's going on. And so Paul's going to say with these three kind of rhetorical questions that are all the answer no. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Are you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he has a senior moment. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. If you were with us last week, Crispus and Gaius are the synagogue leader and the next door neighbor. And he's like, I only baptized those two. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did d- baptize Stephanus too. And maybe some other people. But that's not the point. The point is that I didn't baptize a whole lot of people. That's it, the point he's trying to make in his little senior. I just baptized a few amount of people. And if you can see in 17, God didn't call me to baptize. God called me to preach the gospel. That's what I want to do. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. Not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the power of the cross be emptied by its power. So we know that when Paul went there, you had these, well, let's, let's go back to the list. Let's go back to the list. You've got these four factions. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, and then Jesus Duke uh, group, I follow, I follow Christ. So we know who Paul is. Apollos was, is given to us in chapter 18, same Just a few verses later. So if we had gone to the next section, we would have met Apollos. Uh, In 1824, it says this in chapter Acts. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
So this particular Corinthian church was like, I follow Paul. It's like the modern-day Matt Chandler, like knows the scriptures and just super eloquent, right? Like I can listen to him read the phone book, and I'll just, I, I'm hanging on every word. Um, so you've got Apollos, and then you've also got people that follow Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is Peter. So people are saying, of all the apostles, the chief apostle was Peter, so I followed the chiefest of all apostles, Peter. And the rest of them are like, I follow Jesus, so I showed you. Um, now here's the thing. Uh, this is important. It's worth noting that three-fourths of the groupings were not aligned with Paul. So Paul knows this, and so he has to, as, he, as he's writing, even as he's writing, he's, he knew that his authority for the Corinthian church, for them even listening to him, was in jeopardy. And so he is going to, uh, even as he writes, that's why he, when he writes in chapter 1, in the introduction, for verses 1 through 3, he says, Paul called by the will of God, that's interesting language, because usually for Paul, calling is about salvation here, for him it's about pastoral ministry, and then he says to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, most of the time when he writes to people that he knows and trusts, he calls himself a servant, a diakonos of Jesus, or doulos of Jesus, but here he says an apostle, apostolos, so he's trying to claim quickly with them apostolic authority so that the rest of his message will be heard. Because he knows his authority is in jeopardy because three-fourths of the groupings aren't like, I, I follow Apollos or Cephas or Jesus. And so he knows that his authority is in jeopardy. So he wants to launch in quickly to establish his authority so that these 16 chapters will be heard by him. And his deepest concern and the reason why he's writing is in verse 17. He says, where he says, Paul didn't mean to, Christ didn't mean to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He doesn't want the cross to be emptied of its power. And so the factions were going to bring about that. And so he's trying to quickly end the factions. Now, what can we learn from this problem? This is what we can learn. First, the, f- the reason why there's factions and following different leaders, where you've got people. So put up number two. We didn't, y'all didn't put it, I, I didn't tell you to put it. Here it is, the problem. Divisions, that's my fault. Divisions over leaders in the name of Christian wisdom. So I follow this guy, I follow this guy, I follow this guy. And that, that's the problem that Paul outlines for him. Now, here's what we can learn from this problem. Number one is, this is not on the screen, there's an underlying constant temptation by us over the last 2,000 years. Humans do this in every single century for us to elevate form over substance. That's what's going on here. I want the eloquent guy. I want the guy that's, that's you know, really, really good in form and it's, they're elevating, the temptation is to elevate form over substance. And Paul's warning that this can be toxically dangerous. Now, let's be clear. Form is not a bad thing. What, what, we mean, what I mean is eloquent speech over what's the actual message. We can say, well, the message is important, but man, if they're eloquent, that's really good for the message. And Paul doesn't want you to think that the way things are said are more important than actually what's being said, right? So I appreciate you coming here every week. You you certainly do ele- hopefully elevate substance over form. But um, like he doesn't want that. He doesn't want them to elevate form over substance. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that form's a bad thing. Um, form, the way things are done, the way things are said, is important. It has its proper place. But it can never be replaced or be elevated above substance. So what it means is this. It means flash or excellence um, that one has while it might be important, is not as important as the actual words and the meaning of the words that people say. In other words, the way things are said is not important as truth. Truth is more important than the way things are said. Certainly, form is important. We want to be eloquent and you know, say things with excellence, and you want to, want to listen to the person talking. But what's true 
is more important, the substance of it. And there's, there's, there's certainly um, a danger there. And so Paul's wanting us to learn that substance is more important than form. And that's why he says in two, chapter 2, or actually in, in uh, verse 17, he didn't come with eloquent wisdom. And in chapter 2, he says he came in weakness, fear, and trembling so that uh, there was a demonstration of God's power and strength and not his own. So when he preached the gospel and le- lots of people get saved and it wasn't eloquent, everybody would say, wow, God's awesome. But if he preached the gospel really eloquently and lots of people would get saved, they say, wow, God's awesome. And you're good at speaking, Paul. And he didn't want that. He wanted them to understand that God's awesome and that's all they need to know. So that's the first thing that we can learn. The second thing that we can learn from putting, uh, from, this, from this problem that's going on where people are putting divisions uh, is this, that we should not let problems as a church, such as second tier, third tier, fourth tier issues, cause divisions in our church. First tier, gospel, that should cause a division. If someone doesn't preach the gospel, that's a big deal. But secondary, third, third tier kind of issues, we should not let, and Christ Jesus does not want that to happen. That's the whole point of John 17 where Jesus prays in the garden. If you read John 17, Jesus is praying that we would not have divisions, but instead be one. Christ does not want us to be divided. He, want us, he wants us to further, he wants us to agree and be of the same mind. Divisions in the church will be the first thing that throw us off mission, will be the first thing that throws us off from what we're told to do, which is make disciples. And so we don't want that. Uh, it doesn't mean that divisions won't happen, but when they do, we want to strive to solve them quickly in a Christ-honoring way and not be taken off mission. And so thing that we can learn from this is that uh, we don't want to have divisions in the church. Now, Paul's going to give them the answer to this problem in verse 18 and following. I'll give you one guess what the answer is. It's so easy. You'll never guess it. It's the gospel. Right. Very good. If you're wondering, I think it's the gospel because he says that word a lot. You were right. That's it. It's the gospel of Jesus because we worship Jesus, not, not just the news. So, um, or we don't worship news. We worship Jesus. So, um, Here's the third thing. Here's the answer. It's the gospel or God's folly. And that's in air quotes because there's no such thing as God's folly. But he's using that as, as a way to try to uh, help them understand, which contradicts human wisdom. So in verse 18, he says, for, so that for or that un is connecting to verse 17. Uh, un in Greek, helping you say what he just said there is connecting to this particular verse. So Christ didn't mean to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For the gospel, the word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's no third middle road uh, purgatory. It's perishing, being saved. That's all there is. There's not the middle road where you can pray yourself out one day. If after you die and go, maybe get to heaven. Or maybe you know, if you're real bad in purgatory, you go to hell. It's, it's just perishing, being saved. Those are it. Now, for those that are being saved, that, that it should evoke from us two responses. One, thankfulness. God, in his infinite wisdom, for some reason, decided to save me. There was nothing great about me. As a matter of fact, before he saved me, I was an enemy of his. And yet, he chose to save me. I am being saved by him. That should cause you and I to be amazingly thankful for that. Not only that, the second response should be a burden. Because there are people that are lost, that are perishing right now without messages of the gospel. And so while we're thankful for being saved, we're also burdened to tell those that 
are perishing so that they'll be saved as well. And Paul gives his kind of thesis statement of the answer of the gospel in verse 22 and 23 when he's talking about these two people, Jews and Greeks. Um, There's Jews who are perishing and being saved. There's Greeks who are perishing and being saved. And the cross is what's what's saving all Jews and Greeks. He says, and the cross is what's causing people actually to not be saved because they think it's uh, not a sufficient sign or they think it's foolishness. For Jews demand signs and the cross wasn't good enough for them. And Greeks seek wisdom and they think, Greeks think the cross is foolishness. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews because it's not a sufficient sign and foolishness to the Gentiles because they think, why would God die for people? God, that's That's crazy talk. That's what they both think. And that's why he says it's a stumbling block to both of them. But to those who are called, see, here's the called here for salvation, not for pastoral ministry. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, they see the cross. Christ, the power of God, is the wisdom of God. They think it's ridiculous. It's God's folly. It's foolishness. But in essence, it is the thing that saves. The answer to destroy divisions in the church is the gospel. And then he's going to give three reasons or three illustrations of God's folly that destroys divisions in the church. The first one is the crucified Messiah. So the first illustration of the gospel of God's folly, A, is the crucified Messiah. You can go ahead and put up number A. Um, You can see it in 18 through 25. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, 14 here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debate of the sage? It's not God made the foolishness of this wisdom of this world. Um, We've read these parts. Let's go to verse 24 and 25. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the first perceived folly of God on behalf of Jews and Greeks who don't believe is a crucified Messiah. We need to understand that this has always been the divine intent. When I say crucified Messiah, I mean crucified is the part I want to I highlight for you, why they think it's ridiculous. We need to, as we look at this, erase all sentimentality of the old rugged cross. You know, from 2,000 years we look back at the cross and it brings sentimentality. We, we tattoo it on our skin, we put it on our, on our, on our uh, houses, we wear it on our necks. And so uh, that, that uh, in a lot of ways, can help us not understand how the first century hearers heard the, the cross. For them, to talk about a crucified God would be utterly senseless and foolish that God would come down and allow himself to be killed. The idea of Roman crucifixion in the first century was repugnant and detestable. So to try to give you an example of of how it should be, the emotions that you should be evoked and be feeling right now about the cross is, think about ISIS beheadings. Think about ISIS burning men in cages. What kind of sick, disgusting feeling do we feel towards that? That's how the first century hearers feel about the cross. And here, the message is a crucified Messiah. This is utter foolishness to them. It's utter foolishness. And this is the answer that God has given. What you think is foolishness is the wisdom of God. That's why it's in air quotes. Because God's always smarter than us. His greatest folly is infinitely smarter than our greatest wisdom what he's saying. So um, uh, 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 a commentator's last name is Garland. He says this word, the very cross should be 
uh, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, the, his eyes and ears. They, they, they hated the idea of Roman crucifixion. To proclaim a crucified Jew from some tiny hick backwater town, I added some of that in, in there, uh, of the empire as the divine being sent on earth as God's son, Lord of all and the coming judge of the world, must have been thought by any educated man in the first century to be utter madness and presumptuousness. Christianity was cradled in what looked like a disastrous defeat. God dying on a cross. And the unspeakable stigma of the cross, which is just repulsiveness to to them. And Christianity started with this gross stigma of the cross. Exposed the preacher of this message, Paul, to woeful contempt. People thought it was ridiculous because they hated the cross. Paul, however, did not refer to Jesus' death with embarrassment or skip over the awkward facts. Quite the opposite. It was central to his preaching. A crucified Messiah was central to his preaching because the resurrection disclosed Christ's sufferings and his death to be God's modus operandi or the mode of which he operated to save the world. He goes on to say this. The gospel then transforms the cross as a symbol of Roman terror, just like ISIS beheadings are a symbol of terrorism today. It transforms the symbol of the cross of Roman terror and political domination into a symbol of God's love and power which is right then for us 2,000 years to sing about the old rugged cross. It shows that the power of God's love is greater than human love for power. So the cross is the answer for them. And so you have the Jews and the Gentiles who are hearing the crucified Messiah, and it's revealing their idolatries. Both of them, who are vastly different from each other, it's it's revealing their idolatries. Thus the Jews and the Greeks here illustrate the basic idolatries of humanity which is God must function as the all-powerful or the all-wise but all-wise all person, but always in terms of my best interest and power of my behalf and wisdom the way I think wisdom should happen. That's, that's the idolatry of both the Jews and the Greeks, thinking that God has to conform to the way that we think. Both of these are ultimately idolatry. It is the insisting that God must conform to our prior view as to how the, the God who makes sense ought to do things. And so... The first answer is a crucified Messiah. You shouldn't have factions about Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and Christ or whatever because the message itself is so counterintuitive. Forget leaders. The cross evens the playing field for us all because we we worship a crucified Messiah, not some leader that elevates himself, but instead God who does the opposite of that, who comes in humility and is willing to go to the cross. So quit elevating your leaders. Next one is God's folly, the Corinthian believers. The answer is the gospel, the Corinthian believers. Paul here in verses 26 through 31. This is, this is beautiful. It, do you know somebody that's just so smart that whenever they tell, talk to somebody and, and when they're talking to somebody, they're really kind of telling somebody that they're talking to that, that they're not so smart, but the person that's hearing it thinks that they're the greatest person in the world? That's what's going on here. P- Paul is telling them that they are basically... Um, not very smart, they're not very powerful, they're not very noble, and they're pretty foolish. And all the while he's telling them those things, he's literally encouraging them up. You're not smart, you're not very wise. That's what's going on, it's pretty awesome. His rhetorical skills, though he didn't come in, in, in powerful speech, his writing is unbelievable. So the second apologetic of God's folly are the Corinthian believers themselves. You, you don't need to argue You're proof of that because consider your own calling, brothers. You're not wise, according to worldly standards. 
actually, I didn't think you're very smart at all. Uh, you're not powerful. You couldn't do anything in Corinth when I was there. You're not of noble birth. None of y'all really seemed important when I was there. But God chose what's foolish, <clears throat> that's you, and to the world to shame the wise. So he kind of gave them encouragement as he told them they weren't very smart, wise, or noble. And he says, but because God chose to save you, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, if we were in charge of saving people, we would think the person that's the smartest, the richest, and the most powerful, God needs to save them. Think of the most powerful uh, Hollywood figure in America. We'd say, God needs to save that person. And imagine if they were saved and they tweeted about Jesus to their three million followers, half of them which are fake, like every week, every week, all the time. Like they would just get saved. And God's like, that ain't the way he does it. That ain't the way he does it. He, he saves you and me. He saves you and me. He saves the Corinthian church. And so Paul's telling them, you're actually a good example of God's foolishness because he saved you. Not, not the rich people in Corinth, not the powerful people in Corinth, you. God chose what's foolish in the world and, the wise, and to shame the wise, but God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are. You're pretty low, and God, you who are nothing, he brought you out of nothing so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. So don't pursue money, don't pursue power, don't perceive nobil- pursue nobility. Instead, th- you have a reorientation of your pursuits now, as he says in verse 30. Now you pursue Jesus, and he's the one that gives you your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. So don't boast anything except for the Lord. So the second apologetic he uses is the Corinthian church themselves. Gordon Fee says it this, this way. Thus, the Corinthian church themselves are evidence of divine foolishness that confounds the wise. They're the ones. They're the ones that are proof. So what does that mean for you and I? This is what it means. Um, well, for them it means you don't need to divide over factions of leaders because you yourselves were saved by God. It's not about Apollos or Paul. It's about all of us being God's children. Apollos, Paul, and Cephas, and me and you, we all find level playing field at the foot of the cross as children of God. And it, and it makes it all about Jesus. So what does that mean for us today? It means this, that in comparison of all human history and all the people that were ever live, not just 2,000 years ago, but now, the Corinthian church and you and me are essentially unknown people and will be unknown people in human history. There may be an anomaly here where one of y'all becomes president, but usually 90-whatever percent of our church and population are going to be nobodies, essentially nobodies, to the world, right? To the world, not to God. You're not a nobody. God loves you, I love you, and you are awesome. But in the world standards, we're not. And what he's saying is, since that's the case, God has chosen to use not your favorite most popular person, your favorite actor or your favorite athlete or whoever, right? God has chosen most of the time the Corinthian church that are weak, not wise, not noble, foolish, and despised. Same with us. God's chosen to save us, not them, us. And he's chosen to advance his kingdom, not through them, but through us. Great application for us then. So, he chooses to save us, even though there's nothing great about us. And he chooses to advance his kingdom, not with those great people, but us. And so, 
don't argue about leadership. You're saved. The ground's level at the foot of the cross between the leaders and me and you. And God saved you, and he wants all of us to advance his kingdom. That's the second one. The third one is, is Paul's preaching. God's folly was the way that Paul came and preached. He says, then when I came to you, brothers of two, one, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. I, I, I preached in weakness. I preached in fear. I preached in trembling. And my, split, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but, because they were in fear and weakness and trembling, that was the form, but the substance of what I said, because it was true in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, the way I say things, but in the power of God. So the third wisdom is Paul's preaching himself, the way that he did. It's ironic that there was a faction for Apollos, who was an orator, heavy and strong in the scriptures. It's ironic that they were enamored with the powerful speech and beautiful orator of Apollos, and yet it was the weak, fearful trembling of Paul that actually saved them. That's ironic, right? Um, but Paul uses the way that he came as an, as an apologetic in his favor to help them see that weakness in his speech actually signals the strength and power of God. And he wants them to understand it's not about leaders. Think about the way I came to you. It wasn't hardly anything. So don't worry about leaders. You have the message himself. The way I came to you is, is proof to that. So what does that mean for you and I? It means this. Are you feeling weak right now? Perfect. That's great. That's actually exactly where God wants you. Are you feeling inadequate? Wonderful. Are you feeling ill-equipped for the task? God has you exactly where he wants you then. Because just like this, it's in the weak, fearful, trembling preaching that God saves. Now that we are weak, God can be strong. Now that we are feeling ill-equipped, God will equip us. Now that we feel like we don't, we're completely inadequate, that's where God flexes his gospel muscles and shows off and that we boast in him and not in ourselves. So God's folly, God's folly here in the, the third part is literally Paul's preaching. The goal of chapter 1, this, this whole answer, these three-part answers of, of um, the crucified Messiah, the Corinthian believers, and Paul's preaching. The goal of this, as Paul's preaching to the Corinthian, or writing to the Corinthian church, is to take those, those uh, sinful, misguided souls, to bring them in and bind up their hearts, bind up these brokenhearted people, empower them, even though they were weak and disenfranchised, empower them because they have already, that's what he told them in the Thanksgiving, this is already who you are in Christ. Let me remind you of these eight truths to empower them and love them, even though they're the unlovely of the world. And in short, drive them to the level playing ground of the foot of the cross where they don't elevate leaders, but instead only Christ is elevated. And then push them beyond factions, push them beyond divisions, and not trying to claim any exaltation of leaders, but only claiming exaltation of Christ so that they would feel free to live on mission. So they would feel free to realize that it's not about them. And it pushes us in the exact same way to trust the promise of verse 21. Notice what he says in the second half of 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God through the folly of what we preach. Jews and Gentiles think it's crazy. More signs, not sufficient. That doesn't seem very smart, the way that God did it. It pleases God that when we preach that, what happens? Those who believe will be saved. And so it gives us 
great reason to trust that promise. So the standards in the Corinthian church, and even today, for popularity were wisdom, money, and power. And the gospel of Jesus takes those things and turns them on our head. And instead of presenting those things as what to pursue after, it pursues Christ. It pursues a crucified Christ for broken, wretched nobodies, sinful people. And it saves them and calls them with a message that doesn't have to be proclaimed or preached with excellence because there isn't any power necessarily in the way that it's said because there's already inherent power in the actual message of the gospel itself. So you don't have to worry about the way it's said because the message is already powerful. And it puts us now, takes us away from those things and it directs all of our forced attention away from wisdom, away from money, and away from power in a completely different way as it says in 130 that he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Not money, not power, not uh, wisdom, but instead, Jesus is now the source of your life. Not those things. It directs our attention to a different priority, namely Christ. And in Christ, he gives us wisdom, as it says in verse 30. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus gives us those things. The gospel of Christ makes us wise, righteous, sanctified, and redeemed. Amen and amen to that.